Dr. Anat Binur co-founded UCO, a startup biotech focused on leveraging computational technology to understand the biologic immune response to food allergens and in turn engineer proteins to combat that response. But as you'll soon find out, she's not the kind of doctor you might expect her to be. I'm Matt Piller, and on today's episode of The Business of Biotech, we're going to try to hang on for the wild ride that is Dr. Binur's life. We're going to learn how that wild ride led her to the launch of UCO. We'll hear about the novel therapeutic approach the company is exploring, and we'll find out what drives one of the most energetic women in the biotech business to continually reinvent herself and challenge those around her. Dr. Binur, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to have you. You know, just taking a, a cruise through your your CV, your LinkedIn profile, even it's uh, it's like wow, there's a lot to unpack there in in, in this woman's background. So Sorry, before we I'm get into sort of the, the dots, <laughs> there are a lot of dots to connect. Uh, and before we get into sort of the therapeutic discussion, I want to that, that's where I want to start. I want to rewind a little bit and, and get to know you uh, because your background is pretty exciting. Um, so I'm just going to rattle through some highlights here. Uh, if I get anything wrong as I'm rattling through, feel free to interrupt me and uh, you know and, and, and correct or add color. But um, Dr. Binur uh, served in the Israeli Defense Force, earned her LLB, which is a law degree kind of equivalent, I think, uh, to to the JD here in the states. Clerked for the State Attorney of Israel, served as a legislative fellow in the U.S. House of Representatives. Founded Meet, M-E-E-T, an organization that uses tech and business with partners like MIT and Google to bring together and educate future leaders in the Middle East. Uh, earned your PhD in political science with a focus on behavioral economics. While earning your PhD at MIT, you studied large-scale behavioral economics uh, field experiments to empirically test and measure norms of trust and cooperation in game-theoretic settings. So it sounds to me like you're an educated manipulator. <laughs> and, and I mean <laughs> That's that one way of looking at it. <laughs> I mean that in a kind of way. Uh, you consulted for the World Bank. Uh, you're an investor at Innovation Endeavors, a VC, VC firm. I partnering was. With, what's that? I was. Yeah, yeah. A VC firm partnering with uh, startups that apply cutting-edge technology to transform large industries. So, I mean, kind of all over the map. A lot of really cool experiences uh, but then, it, it, you know, it looks like you carved out, as I said, this this sort of uh, incredibly successful career influencing people. Maybe that's a more polite way of saying it than than, than manipulating. I want to learn kind of how all these experiences influence your leadership now of an early stage biopharma company. Um, but, but first, tell me, how did you even become the the leader of an early stage biopharma company with this with this the background that you had? I mean, very. Poli sci, defense, uh, consultative at a at a global level. What led you to biopharma? Yeah, first of all, you know, definitely people often ask me, especially now and talk to kind of younger people and they're thinking about their career. It's definitely a story of connecting dots, and sometimes only in retrospect you can understand kind of how these things add value to what you're doing today and how you got to be doing what you're doing. Mm -hmm. I would say for me, you can see that common theme because the first parts of my career were definitely in the worlds of policy and education and academia and politics, um, it's very mission-driven. So I'd say, first of all, I've always, for me, I just feel the most precious thing we have is time. And I want to spend my time on things that matter to me or just feel right to me, because otherwise, you know, what are we doing? 
Um, so I think I always look for mission-driven things. Prior to starting UCO, I was on the venture side. I was a partner at a fund called Innovation Endeavors, as you mentioned. And you know, as a VC, I looked a lot at different technologies. And um, I was also, I was always passion-driven about things that were mission-driven, deep tech, the really big market opportunity. Um, but at the same time, I always had an itch to, to get back into the operator seat, which you don't really get to do in a VC seat. Mm-hmm. Um, so when my co-founder, Yanaya Fran, Professor Yanaya Fran, who's also one of my very close friends from our undergrad days, told me about an idea I'd been working. And it checked all the boxes that I had you know, been looking for as a VC, things to invest in. I just I decided that it's time to make the switch and kind of go to the what's often called the other side of the table. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That innovation endeavors uh during your time there, were you exposed to 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 biotech, biopharm, or or was it uh mostly so more on the tech side? Yes, you know, innovation endeavors is a really unique and amazing fund. I'm still very close to the fund. They've invested in UCO, they sit on my board, and it's a, a fund in Silicon Valley that invests really in the intersection of very deep tech and big, big industries, really trying to make an impact on, on the world. Um, so yes, luckily and fortunately for me, I got a chance to every day look at the most edge technologies that were out there and really think about how they can re- revolutionize either existing industries and even invent new ones. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So looking at that, like s- sort of looking at life sciences as the industry, did you have any uh, reservation kind of going into it around um, jumping into an industry where you, you weren't formally educated and didn't necessarily have a lot of uh, career experience or, or was uh or was it like, like most other yeah. things in Anabinur's life, <laughs> head down, let's go. You know, I think I'm a mix of things. And luckily for me, I think I'm a mix of an entrepreneur and a VC. So as a VC, you're often very thoughtful. You need to be about what you invest in and really think about all the different risks. And in this case, I have to say, yes, I was apprehensive about jumping into a world that I wasn't familiar with in depth, right? But the hat in me, or I think my DNA that's more entrepreneurial, I think the only way entrepreneurs really move forward is by, you know, not thinking about things always um, as they are, but imagining what they could be and getting really excited about the possibility. So for me, it was an intersection of understanding that this is a massive opportunity, that it's a really mission-driven problem. And that at the same time, I, I love learning new things. And I think I could for me, it was clear about building a strong team around me that will enable me to overcome any gaps that I had in, in knowledge or or experience. Yeah, was what uh, was the the specific space of food allergens? But medicine, we'll we'll start with medicine in general. Uh, was was there any I guess personal inspiration to want to be involved in that? I mean, I get the whole kind of mission driven, big big change, you know, good good for humanity kind of uh, yeah. kind of drive. Uh, but when you winnow that down into the specific space where Uko lives, and we're going to jump into that here shortly, uh, w- was there any specific motivation to say, yes, that, that you know, there are a lot of problems out there that I could be interested in solving. That one in particular is interesting to me. Yeah. One, I think food allergies and sensitivities are everywhere and they definitely touch my life as well. And I'm almost never now, you know, on a call in the elevator with my neighbors in a dinner at a school meeting where it's not a topic of discussion. So it was something that was very top of mind. And it also for me, is a perfect example of how much technology can give hope, right? I think we're in this sense in a world that has a lot of issues. The hopeful part of it is that I do think we're at the edge of what technology 
um, can can do to help us live better, healthier, safer lives. And I saw that intersection as a moment of possibility, and I could see how we could really make a big impact through Uko. Yeah. Okay. Um, so we've we've used the word we mentioned the the company the, the use the word Uko several times. What is U K K O for those of you yeah. who uh, who who haven't read the show notes? U K K O. What, what does what, what does the Uko. word mean? Where's it come yes. from? Uko actually comes from Finland. It is Finnish, and it's uh it's from the mythology from the Finnish mythology. It's one of their gods that really represents kind of the harvest and rains, and um, it has to do with the origin story of Uko. We really wanted a word that touches on the things that we do that isn't overly bio and also connected a little bit to our personal life. So growing up, I would spend many summers in Finland, and it's a place I, I really love. And specifically, this connects uh, Uko and the god Uko connected to the origin story of Uko, looking at food and food proteins and crops and so on. And so that's how we picked the word. The I like it. That's a good good story. Great visual for sure. Um, so how how did you launch it? Take us just walk us through sort of the the launch genesis story, I guess. Yeah, sure. So interestingly, I think that Uko really started with uh, looking at a problem in reverse. And this is something that my co-founder and I friend often says, because it started a lot with his technology and his approach. And he's an incredible scientist uh, deep in the world of bioinformatics and biophysics. And his work for many years looked at, in a super simplified way, biomolecular recognitions. So in general, I would say, when you think about the world of bio and pharma, often what we look at is, can we engineer proteins for better targeting, right? Better in, in some drug cases, for example, can we engineer antibodies for better targeting and binding? But at some point he said, hold on, if we understand it so, so deeply, how proteins actually interact and target each other, what happens if we completely reverse it and ask ourselves, could we design proteins for lack of recognition to not uh, interact at all? And that really sparked a whole kind of, you know, feel area in which he started delving into. And he did an initial proof of concept around food allergies and sensitivities, because it's exactly a possible solution for this case, because of the way the immune system interacts with proteins in the case of allergy. Mm -hmm. um, and he got really interesting results. And that was the point that he came to, to talk to me while I was on the VC side. And as I said before, I, I was wowed. I said, this really checks all the boxes for me. And we decided to start the company. So at that point, very formative, you know, sort of a scientific principle. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm thinking of it in, in very simplistic terms, but I'm yeah. thinking you you could either say, you know, let's attack this problem via the 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 food that we consume, and you know, let, let's apply some protein engineering to the food that we consume, or you could say, let's approach this problem, you know, bi biopharmaceutically in 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 people medicinally or, or or maybe both so i'm wondering at, at what point you know as as you were kind of presented with the scientific principle that that seemed like a, a a great potential solution to a big problem at what point did you uh kind of take that ball of clay and start to mold it into something that could be productized right like and say yeah. you know we could probably build a company around this otherwise it's just a cool idea for sure. And I have to also say here, maybe it's my VC hat on, you know, that entrepreneurship always remember that what you start with is never where you really end up. And you sure. have to really be open for the journey and the pivots. And UCO is an example of this because when we launched UCO, the idea was really to focus on food. 
So how can we use these technologies, computational uh, tools and protein design to really make healthier and safer food? And our goal is really to develop safe wheat and safe peanuts to be eaten, consumed by people with sensitivity and allergy. But as we started delving into that and kind of developing our capabilities and our assays and starting to see some of the results that we were getting, we realized that we actually have a really ability to really have a very holistic approach here and design proteins that are food proteins to be safe and healthy and effective in different ways, both for the food industries, but also as drugs. And this really started evolving um, as, as we progressed all the way to where we are today, which is really focused on developing a new therapy for, at the end, any protein-based allergy, but starting with peanut allergy first. Yeah. So in those early years, you weren't sure if you'd be, you know, engaging the USDA or the, or the FDA or, or both or CEDAR or CBER, like it, it was sort of uh, up up in the air. That's right. And we actually started engaging and still in conversations with many of those bodies, but definitely built a very interdisciplinary approach. And I think it's one of the strengths of the way we look at this. And in general, I should say for food allergies and sensitivities, for a long time, these there have been silos in this world mm-hmm. where people really either focused on the drug side or on the kind of food side. And the idea is, can we really intersect the two really, really well so that we have a deep understanding of how our immune system works, how it interacts with the food proteins? Can we understand food proteins really in depth and then look at products very holistically in developing from food all the way to drug? Yeah. Um, Does the science, uh, I guess, lend itself to any particular food allergen or any particular uh, food allergy indication that uh, is is more low-hanging fruit or a better target for you than others? Yes, it's not about a low-hanging fruit. Actually, it's a big hanging fruit, but we're focused Mm -hmm. first. We're starting with food allergy and specifically peanut allergy as our first kind of indication with the goal of creating a new way to treat peanut allergy. But our approach, which I can talk about in a minute a bit more, at the end, we'll be able to um, create solutions and products for any protein-based allergy. That means other food allergens, environmental, respiratory allergies, and also even venom-based allergies. If the allergy is protein-based, our approach eventually will be able to, to create solutions for this. Yeah. You mentioned that the the current sort of care paradigm. I mean, you know, as far as far as I'm as as far as I know, you know, from a consumer perspective, when it comes to food allergies, on the food side, you know, there's uh, it's it's a very market driven kind of you know focus probably on on digestive issues like gluten free and celiac and that kind of thing. But you don't you don't necessarily see any companies, you know, planters isn't out there right now that I know of saying like, hey. There's yeah. a, a a safe a safe peanut your kids can take in their lunch to school, um, but but on the on on the medicinal side on the therapeutic side of of treating allergies, you know you mentioned there's there's also a, a sort of a siloed uh, approach there. So tell me a little bit about um, you know science. Your science uh, obviously is is going to step in hopefully and, and solve some problems, but but why is it an opportune time to do do that? Why is what what is the problem with the current therapeutic care paradigm on the food allergy landscape? Yeah. So first of all, I'll start by saying I think it's a very hopeful time for patients who have food allergies or sensitivities. You see really growing efforts in the space. First of all, FDA actually approved the first drug in 2020, which is wonderful and great news. 
Um, and second, every day I'm hearing about new companies that are launching and very diverse set of approaches and how to tackle this problem. So in general, it's exciting and I think very, very hopeful. However, there are limitations and some of them are based on just the fact that there's just so much unknown about what is going on here. You know, like I said, I grew up in New York and Israel. I never had a kid in my class with food allergy, and now it's really everywhere, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what is going on here exactly? And how is one patient different from another? So there's a lack of, or, you know, we still need to um, gather a lot more data and understand the problem better. And second is that many of the approaches have been even technologically limited, and the end result is often poor patient experience, right? And it's one of the main challenge in this space. Specifically, if you look at some of the existing approaches, they really focus on using the peanut itself in order to expose patients or to treat patients. And the main hurdle there is that really um, this causes a trade-off because in this case, kind of the curative compound, which is the peanut, is also what we can call like the toxic compound, the mm-hmm. thing we're actually reacting to, which is the peanut. So this creates a deadlock, right? Which forces us into this, trade-off all the time between efficacy and safety. There's a limit what route of administration I can use, how much I can dose the patient, because there's always a risk level that I have to kind of walk around, right? And the question that UCO is really sits in the midst of is, can we modulate, shift your immune system without triggering this allergic response, without kind of this more toxic, problematic part. And this is really where our platform comes in because by using and harnessing, this is the opportunity for us, right? AI and immunology and very, very advanced protein design, protein engineering, we manage to break this deadlock because we're able to go to a protein and design it such that we kind of can really pick which parts of the protein we want to maintain structure and stability and the parts that are actually causing the good side of the therapy, the, the teaching of the immune system, mm-hmm. and kind of get rid or engineer away the parts of the protein that are actually triggering the, the allergic response. So our goal at the end will be to create kind of a whole new way to, uh, to treat allergy such that you can really improve the patient experience. You won't have all the side effects and the reactions as you're going through the treatment. Um, you know, maybe we can even cut down some of the time of the treatment and create more efficacious treatment. Right now, patients really face a very hard, long process that can sometimes take years and at the end still leave them in a place which is safer. And that is so, so important, but not necessarily a cure. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I can only imagine. I mean, I, you know, I've shared on the show, in fact, in similar conversations with uh, protein engineers and folks working in the, the uh, you know, allergic therapy space that I, you know, I, I, in my early twenties developed some seasonal allergies that were severe, certainly not life-threatening, but severe. And therefore, you know, subjected myself to the, uh, the, the, the testing and then years and years and years of, uh, of, of, of therapy exposure, right. Exposure to, to those allergens and small doses. And it did help, but boy, was it a commitment, you know, and that's for a, that's for a mild sort of, you know, annoyance, right. This it's certainly far from, far from, life-threatening, but, um, you know, weekly and then bi-weekly and then monthly for years on end. And if you think about parents and the kids themselves, this is really a very hard process to go through, um, often with a lot of monetary and emotional and, you know, and financial and operational 
um, implications. And it's a lot to ask from, from patients, but at the same time, peanut allergy and other allergies can be life-threatening. So this is, this is a hard choice to make. And yeah. I think that a lot of the efforts out there are trying to crack that, but in order to really be able to ch- change the game, to create like a whole new way of looking at this, I think what we need to do is to be able to break that deadlock, to really ask like, what are the things we can leverage in the existing proteins that we know work in kind of modulating, changing your immune system, um, and yet kind of engineer for, design for a far better patient experience by, you know, really reducing or getting rid of the parts that are creating these these harsher effects. Yeah, I, I mean, the, yeah, the the approach. I, I I like that. I like the fact that you know you're looking at it from a source perspective and from a therapeutic perspective. Um, and you know, you mentioned a, a minute ago um, about the fact that you know when when you were in school, and so, you know, I'm 47 years old. When I was in school, it was like I never I never remembered having to be segregated from anyone at the lunch table. Right. Um, my my kids are now in high school, and they grew up, uh, you know, coming through through elementary school in particular, and even now in high school, it's a it's an everyday thing. Like we, I know, I know plenty of kids, plenty of their peers who are, uh, who, who suffer from peanut allergies in, in particular. Um, do you, is there any insight out there? Like what, what does sort of the literature say about why the, the, the indication is, has become so prevalent? Do, do we know? Yeah. I mean, I think first I'd say, I agree with you. I just don't remember this. And now many of, many people call this an epidemic, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's like one to 2%, I think of the population is actually allergic to peanut only like 8% to, to food allergies. And, and the important thing to remember here is obviously the effect is far beyond the patient, has an impact on the direct family, on the surrounding family. It's enough to have one kid in the class with an allergy and sometimes the entire school is affected by it, right? right. Um, I think this is the part that I was talking about before that there's so much unknown still in this field. Like there isn't one scientifically backed explanation that everyone aligns behind. You know, there are different theories around hygiene and toxin, toxins in our environment and many different kind of hypotheses, but there isn't yeah. one that's really scientifically backed that everyone agrees that this is the core reason, the root cause of what we're seeing. And yeah. this is something that some of the data, for example, that UCO is gathering can hopefully help also unlock beyond the therapy itself, which we are de- designing and developing. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it is it's like, you know, I mean, I've heard all that stuff, right? Like I've heard, we're, we're, well, we're too clean. We're too clean. We're too clean a society. We don't expose ourselves to anything anymore. So therefore we find everything to be, you know, an allergen, you know, the, the, the theories they're, they're far and wide, but the problem is certainly front and center. Yeah. And, and I think, as I said before, on the hopeful time, I do think that it will be, it is solvable and we yeah. will solve it in the coming years. And that this is a, a hopeful time. When you're striving to excel in a new arena, the best guides are the ones already doing it well. The business of biotech brings those voices forward to help new and emerging biopharmas turn their innovations like mRNA and cell and gene therapies into clinical realities. Tune in and subscribe for insights on hiring, regulatory, and other need-to-know topics for biopharma leaders. The podcast is brought to you in collaboration with Cytiva. Check out their resources at cytiva.com backslash emerging biotech. That's C-Y-T-I-V-A.com backslash emerging biotech. Give us some more color on that, uh, you know, the, the solution that's in the works at, at UCO. Um, I, I want to start with sort of what the what the general philosophy is around protein engineering 
there, like what what that looks like in practice, um, you know, what that what that might result in in terms of the the therapeutic itself. Uh, and then uh, a little bit further down the road, I want I want to talk about computational biology. I mean, I know it it seems like man, I'm telling you, every time I talk to a, a company, uh, an Israel based company. We go to tech real fast. You guys are high tech there. I mean, advanced, cutting edge, super smart. So I can't wait to hear about that part of it. But um, <laughs> nice. Yeah. So sure, I can. You know, at the basis um, for Uko, we build a platform that combines AI, very very advanced protein engineering and immunology, and it really allows us to go to a protein and design it for the characteristics we seek. So mm-hmm. we want to maintain, for example, certain biophysical and biochemical characteristics of the protein, stability and its function. And in some aspect, in a very simplified version, let's say kind of curative parts, the parts of the protein that are actually helping modulate the immune system and design away the parts that are, you know, triggering the immune response in patients with these conditions. Now, our approach is based kind of on three steps. The first step is really mapping. So we've gathered hundreds and hundreds of blood samples from all over the world in our labs. And we use it, first of all, to just gather data. What is it on the protein that is actually triggering this immune response? And how are you different than me, different than someone else? And this is where I was talking before about unlocking data. This is really important for our understanding of what is going on here with food allergies and why are some people being triggered one way and other people another? So that's the first part we map. The second part is the design. This is really where the platform comes in because now that we understand what on the protein is happening, we can now go to the protein and start to design it, right? And really what we do, you can think about it like micro engineering, really precision engineering. We go to the protein and we make atomic level changes to it such that we achieve that result that we want, that balance between the parts that we want to keep and the parts that we want to get rid of. And in order to ensure that we've done this, we test it. We go back to the samples and we test them back on samples that, you know, before showed reaction to the native protein, to natural protein. Now we want to test and show that our modified proteins do not cause or trigger that reaction. So we do it both on samples that we have and on new samples. And of course, eventually in clinical trial. Mm -hmm. But the big picture here is that the end of this, you get a protein that in many respects is equal to the regular protein and its behavior and what we wanted to achieve for the immune system. But we get rid, the goal is to really get rid of the parts that are triggering the allergic response. And that, and I'll just say that, that opens whole new worlds for what is possible here. Because even if you think about routes of administration, when you have a toxic peanut as the main kind of compound, which you want to use for therapy, there's a limit in how you can administer it to patient. Because of course, the main thing we want to keep all the time is patient safety, right? right? So if you're able to lower kind of that threat level of the safety, suddenly Lots of new things open up for you as far as dose levels and routes of administration, the way you want to approach the problem. And we're looking at different aspects of this in, in our, in our therapy, in our new, uh, approach. Okay. Is the, is the, 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 the engineer, the protein engineering approach, uh, the same or very similar, uh, both on the, the food manipulation side and the therapeutic side? I'm, I'm you know, I'm not a scientist, so I'm trying to get my mind. Oh, no, great question. 
Yeah. So, so is it, is it, I mean, on the, on the food side, would it be a matter of re-engineering, re-engineering these proteins and then bioengineering the actual plant? Yeah. So on the food side, I would say two things. We do have an asset in gluten that is actually focused more on the food side for people with celiac insensitivity. And there, the balance you want to achieve in the design is let's simplify for a minute. We'll say the good that we want to keep, right, mm-hmm. is the functionality, is the yeah. part of the protein that's actually going to be nutritional and tasty and act yummy and wonderful when you bake with it. But you want to kind of design a way to get rid of the parts that are actually triggering the immune response in people with sensitivity. Once you have that protein, you can put it in different engines of production. You can um, scale it up through fermentation or, as you mentioned, through plants. And yes, then you have to engineer the plants in order to express or to have that, let's call it fermented, a good protein instead of the existing protein that's causing these triggers for people with a sensitivity. So the base technology is the same, mm-hmm. just the application and the way you scale it is, is different. On the therapeutic side, and again, the simplistic thinking, but I'm, I'm curious. So it is the, the I guess, the base, the general approach, what we're trying to achieve here is to introduce a protein, almost like a vaccine. Like we're introducing a protein to to the patient that um, is going to stimulate, or I'm sorry, not stimulate their immune system and train the immune system to not react to to regular peanuts. That's right. The question that we want to answer is it possible to really modulate the immune system without triggering the allergic reaction at the same time. And by the way, it's built on a lot of pieces of existing studies that have shown the pieces of what we're trying to do work, Mm -hmm. but we're bringing together the puzzle in a unique way. And, you know, it will really, really shift the game of how we look at at, at the ability to kind of, uh, you know, approach and treat protein-based allergy in general. Yeah. Very cool. Um, what other, are there other companies that are kind of lo- looking at the same science or working with the same science in your space, or is, is this pretty unique? So first of all, there's a lot of innovation going on right now in the space of food allergy, which is so great to see. When we started UCO, you know, it, I think it was just beginning. And because of the approval of the FDA of a food allergy drug, and because of the culmination of lots of efforts across academia and, you know, some of the patient organizations um, and some of the entrepreneurs really decided to jump in and, and do this. There's a really a lot of exciting things going on. I think UCO has a unique approach because of the way we harness really an intersection of technologies, of using AI and immunology and this protein design, as I said before, to look at a single protein and really micro-engineer it for the goals that we want in order to break that deadlock. So this idea that you can go and say, what are the characteristics I want an existing protein? This is a food protein to have in order to achieve my my goals is, is unique. Yeah. Uh, Looking forward, um, should you get to the point where manufacturability scale up, you know, becomes, becomes imminent. Like we need, we need to do this based on what you know now uh, about your approach to protein engineering. uh, What are your thoughts on, on its manufacturability on its, you know, yeah. I mean, for our peanut uh, therapeutic, this is a drug, it's a synthetic drug. And we're already, by the way, in development and GMP development towards our clinical trials. And mm-hmm. it'll be very standard kind of scale up production for this purpose. Cool. Good deal. Um, so the computational biology element, I'm, I'm curious about this, you know, and and and, and I'm, I'm supposing I'm going to, I'm going to assume that it probably wasn't a giant hurdle for you to clear because when the company formed up, uh, as you said, uh, it, it was, it was, it was a raw 
kind of piece of clay, right? So, you know, you probably adapted and adopted the tools as you needed them. For many biopharmaceutical companies that kind of grew up in the lab, in the wet lab, uh, the adoption of computational biology tools is 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 foreign. Um, so I think you could provide some nice insight to our audience around the infrastructure, like what what uh, you know what goes into leveraging computational biology from a, a tech and and personnel standpoint. So give us some color on that. Like at, at what point did you did you realize like we're going to need to apply some in silico, you know, AI, machine learning, whatever, whatever those tools might be. You tell me, but we're going to, we're really going to kind of squeeze all the juice we can out of these, these high-tech tools to work toward this bioengineered uh, protein. Yeah. So happily for UCO, computational biology, AI, you know, was really part of our origin story. Mm-hmm. As I mentioned, my co-founder, Professor Inai Fran, this is really his uh, expertise. And we began looking at the problem through this lens, which I think gave us a really unique perspective to begin with. Okay, so just explain what we do with computation and then kind of how we integrated it into our team. You know, first part, as I said before, is this mapping that UCO does. So when we have all these hundreds and hundreds of blood samples from around the world, wow, this generates a ton of data. Right. So first step is really we use these algorithms, what's called AI, to process and analyze and just figure out the conclusions from the data. Right. So we really try to, as I said before, use computational mix with this data into and understand like what is it on the protein that's actually triggering the response. The second piece where computational plays a big part for UCO is prediction and design, because now we've mapped. Now we use our computational tools to understand what are these changes we actually want to make such that, as I said before, we keep that balance all the time between what we want to keep and what we want to get rid of. So we constantly use the computational tools to kind of predict the best possible design for the proteins. And the nice thing about this is that it really allows us super fast iterations, right? Because our comp team can come up with a lot of options on a matrix will be kind of graded in different ways across the variables we're trying to maximize for. And we have the ability to kind of pick and test the best ones. Um, and I'll say one more thing, and then I'll talk about how we structured into the company. Just maybe I keep putting my VC hat back on. But, you know, yeah. VCs often ask this question of entrepreneurs, like, so, but why now? Like, yeah. why, why not? Like, why wasn't this done before? And I think the comp piece is a huge part of this, right? Because in the past, kind of previous methods for protein design really leaned on on really big experimental efforts. They were based on a lot of trial and error, and it required lots of time and very heavy lifting and resources. And Fuuko, the fact that we have this AI at the basis allows us to really focus on the design and move really, really quickly on the iterations. Um, Kind of just one thing on the operational side, I think that because we're asking kind of how we integrate it. And that's, I think, interesting. First, it's really hard today to find people that sit right at the intersection of what we're looking for as far as talent, because you want someone that really understands structural biology, but also is very strong in the AI and kind of computational part of what we're looking for. And I keep saying, you know, if anyone asked me what to go study today, I would say this, a combination of these two things, because they sit at the basis of almost everything that we're going to be innovating on in the next few years. So for us, this is really important in the way we build our team. And the second thing is literally office design. Like one of the things that was really important for us is making sure that there's constant communication. 
mm-hmm. that these groups are not siloed, that they don't meet in a meeting once every X time to kind of go over the data, but that this the, the flow of information between experiment and computational happens in the way we structure our approach and our technology and the information flow in the company, but literally even in how the teams sit. And yeah. they are very, very integrated for those purposes. So that's a bit of a non-tech angle and more like an operational angle, but it's something really cultural that has worked really well for us in this respect. Sure. I'm, and I appreciate that you brought that up. It's, you know, it's not the first time that I've heard this, this concept of, you know, your, your computational biologists and your wet lab biologists, your, you know, your, 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 your machine people, your, your computation yeah. people and your, and your lab people have to uh, learn each other's language and, and, and work well together. So, I mean, just the juxtaposition of them in the office, it make, it makes perfect sense. It really yeah. does. Yeah. And for us, it's super fast iterations. Like they literally, the, the data flows back and forth on a daily basis. So the work here between the experimental and the computational, very, very integrated at Uko. Uh How many people are, are with the company now? We've passed the 50 mark. We're oh, congratulations. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. That's that's terrific. Where are you guys on the, on the clinical journey? So we're a preclinical company. Um, and we're currently already in development and planning clinical trials in the next kind of year and a half to two. Yeah. Okay. What what has to happen between uh, now and then to to make those clinical trials a reality? Well, you know, everything they have, the list is long, but you know, this is, I think, the the part of the process as opposed to research and kind of really discovering our targets and selecting our lead candidates. That's a little more straightforward in the sense that we really have to hit all our development milestones in order to submit uh, to the regulators, get approval and operationalize, put in place the clinical trial um, kind of operations so that we can we can start them on time and do them as as, as best as possible. Yeah, pretty exciting time. Um, <laughs> so the, the conversation around the, the culture there and sort of the positioning of people in the office and the way that they work together, uh, you know, it speaks speaks to leadership. And, and we've reached a point in the podcast where the middle-aged American uh, white guy asks the female CEO what it's like to be a female co-founder and CEO, which is always an uncomfortable question for me to ask because uh, I'll tell you, I, I and I like to ask it because, you know, s- some of the female CEOs and co-founders that I talk to come into the conversation, like in a pre-call, they'll say like, we, we have to talk about this because I'm a passionate advocate for women in STEM and, and I, and I want to talk about this. And other times I've asked and it's it's fallen flat because the, you know, the, the woman that I'm interviewing says, are we still talking about this? Is this still an issue? Like, really? You're going to come out with this? So, but but I have to, like, I, I want to know where you kind of fall on that continuum, right? Uh, you know, what your perspective is and how you might parlay that perspective into advice for other, uh, not just women, but minorities, you know, atypical, a, a we'll say, of historical uh, biopharma leadership. Yeah. I mean, look, this I I think we made a lot of progress. I'm always happy to talk about this because and and in general, I should say diversity, and we'll talk I'm happy to talk a little bit more about that in general. Mm-hmm. Um, you can look around and I see in my daily experience, we need more women in leadership positions, definitely in the biotech and pharma world as well as other industries. VC, which I came from, is another one. And I think there's a lot of work being done, but more to be done. Um I'll also say that for me, I usually want to flip the advice around. And before I start with the women trying to jump into this or in it, I actually think this is, has to be kind of a joint effort of all the players, uh, you know, that are around the table. So usually my kind of my 
don't want to call it advice, but my I like first to start the point of discussion with CEOs in general and executives and heads of HRs, you know, and really say, first, diversity is important, right? There's endless studies that show that it's just the best way to solve problems. And teams that win are teams that are diverse. That's it. But diversity doesn't mean inclusion, right? Like just counting numbers and saying, my team is 50% women. Wow, that's that's great. Or 30% or whatever it is. Um, inclusion really means being super thoughtful about what does it mean to build an organization that gives space to everyone and really leverages the diverse opinions. Like, and what do you need to be aware of? And how do you do this smartly and think about all aspects of it? And that requires something else. Um, I think for women who are trying to kind of jump in, I, you know, I reflect on my own experience. First of all, I would say like, no one should hesitate because there are these challenges. Um, but when you go in, you should go in with an open mind. And for me, things that have been really important are one, making sure I surround myself with really good resources um, that can help me. That is included really strong team around me and mentors. And I have to say management coaches too, which in general, I should say something really important that CEOs should do for themselves and for their teams. It's really helpful. Um, Having kind of that growth mindset is another thing. And another one, and I'm sure you have, I think we all have this, but it's the voices in our head, you know, not letting them hold you back, like really having a serious conversation with them every time they come up. Uh, and, and there's, the, you know, there's, Dr. Aware. Binor, there's Dr. Binor talking to herself again. To <laughs> that's right. Uh, that's right. Um, you, you bring up this point around management consulting and, you know, and, and, uh, and the value of diversity. Um, what, what, what's the thought process around? So obviously, you know, the CEO or co-founder of a, of a, of a 50 person, uh, startup biopharma, uh, in many, in many ways is, is no longer the sole, or maybe never was. I mean, you've got co-founders, you've got a scientific board. I'm sure you've got a board of directors. You're not like the sole decision oh, no. maker. You're not, you know, you're not setting, you know, you're not setting every checking every box of of, of company tone right. um so what what goes into in, in your position aligning um you know the board of directors the the scientific advisory board the the management team all the way down to you know the the person who's cleaning the floors aligning those folks with the 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 idea behind the value of diversity I mean, yeah. it, and how much how much effort does that take, and 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 what goes into making sure that you're you're picking the right folks? I think it's a great question. By the way, especially in a time like this, when there's a lot of people ask a lot about crisis management, right? Just because the markets are so crazy and fundraising and so on. So, yeah, I think a lot of effort should go into this. And first thing for CEOs, I think you have to be clear with yourself. Just what is your, what is driving you? What is the key thing that's important for you right now in the organization? Um, once you integrate also other opinions, the important thing is to align everyone from the macro to the micro. And it's very, very important because it's the only way that you can make sure that your vision and mission is super aligned with the operations that happen on a daily basis. And to do that, you have to make sure that you can first articulate clearly what you're trying to achieve. And second, I think that you have these kind of management cycles, I'll call them, or like kind of, you know, daily workflows, weekly, monthly. What does it look like in your company as far as what type of meetings happen and what messages get 
conveyed by who, when, mm-hmm. and to make sure that those are all aligned. So for me, making sure that I'm clear, that I've conveyed this to my board, I've heard the feedback, by the way, it's it's all at then an integration, but that I've aligned with my board. And then that that message really is aligned with how my exec, our executive team sees things. And that then each of them goes to their managers and to their teams and that there is kind of a cross-organization alignment on what we're trying to achieve. What are we trying to achieve this year, this quarter, this month, this week? And by the way, I do check-ins with the team, kind of I have a 30-minute type of walk around the block, actually with random. It's not, it's totally random. Every week, I, someone else, you know, is the, the meeting scheduled with someone else across the team, across all kind of, you know, uh, groups and, and functions and so on. And one of the questions that's always most important for me to ask is, do you feel that every morning when you come into the organization, it's clear to you what you're doing and why you're doing it? Mm-hmm. And if that's not clear, we have a problem, yeah. right? And so I think actually that kind of communication is really, really important in driving culture, mission, and effectiveness. Yeah. Well, you've uh, you've certainly applied those skills across uh, multiple Multiple, you know, you know I'm, I'm just you look, I'm looking at the clock, Dr. Binor, and I'm thinking like, we're running short on time. I, I wanted to ask you about meat. I know that's a, an important cause. Can, sure. can you give us, can you give us two minutes on that? Yeah. And meat, I, you know, just to tie actually that idea with everything we've been talking about, because you asked about okay. diversity and kind of my connecting the dots type of career, right? So when I started uh, UCO, it's been interesting for me to now reflect back and realize how many of the things I brought into UCO from worlds of policy and government and meet, which is a nonprofit that I'll tell you about in a sec, mm-hmm. in ways that I think are not conventional for a biotech company. And the fact that I came from these interdisciplinary worlds really, really helped and enriched. And it's just a point in case, you know, it's a it's a case in point for why diversity of experience and kind of life uh, viewpoints is so important. So meet. It's very much my other baby. Um, it's a nonprofit organization that I started together with a few co-founders um, almost 18 years ago now. And the goal is we're really focused on the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. And the idea is to really create a future network of Palestinian-Israeli leaders that share a common language and a passion to really driving change in our community. And we do it through a program that runs kind of for excelling high school students. We teach them technology, computer science, entrepreneurship, leadership, and a lot of conflict resolution, a lot of identity work. It's a very intense program that runs for three years along their high school year, wow. uh, years, and then continues as they graduate. We run it today with MIT and Facebook and Google and Salesforce, many, many other companies that are involved. Um, and we have, you know, thousand alumni now in key positions kind of all over our region starting to really create change social and political and economic change and hopefully a brighter future for our communities here yeah so how long ago did you start me we started back it's now i think 19 years ago (laughs) 19 years geez yeah Yeah. i'm sorry i didn't mean to invite you to date yourself there dr no no worries it's you know this is it's been a this is a, it's been a, a, a joyful journey. Unfortunately, you know, things here are, you know, not in the best place that we would want them to be politically, but hopefully meet helps create a, a brighter future for everyone here. Yeah, as well. I mean, yeah. And, you know, po- politics is one thing, but it's, it sounds to me like the program sort of takes the, you know, takes some of that political turmoil and, 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 and angst and uh, distills it down to a, a point where you can create interactions among future 
business leaders and technology leaders yeah. and people who are going to be solving these problems where, where it kind of matters, you know, I, I don't want to say, I don't want to say more than on the political stage or arena, but where, where action happens, right. Where good things happen. Am I, am I reading that right? Yeah. And it also very much, and it also really comes from the idea that networks matter. The people in your life change the way you look at the world yeah. And they are the resources with which you can kind of start to solve problems. And when people are really, you know, segregated from each other, siloed from each other, they don't look at problems in the same way. They don't have the joint resources to solve them. So it's very true. This is true for the business world and for the nonprofit world and for the political world. And what we want to do here is to create a really rich network of super talented young leaders that are very diverse um, and our Palestinian Israeli and that they will work together to create a much better future for, for my kids and for future generations here in general. Awesome work. Where, where can people learn more about meat? Is there a website? Yes. It's, uh, meat.org, www.meat.org. Meat.meet.org. And, uh, and, and Uko, uh, you can check out Uko. Uko, Uko won't be hard to find. Uko. Yeah. It's Uko.us by the way. Beautiful. All right. Well, we're uh, we're up against the time limit here, Doctor Binor, but I I really enjoyed the conversation. Super enlightening. You're a, a, a brilliant and, and beautiful person, and I appreciate the fact that you spent the time with us. Thank you so much for having me on. It's been great. Our pleasure. So that's Uko, co-founder and CEO, Doctor Anat Binor. I'm Matt Pillar, and this is the Business of Biotech. We're produced by Bioprocess Online in partnership with Cytiva. Check us out at bioprocessonline.com. And explore Cytiva's commitment to emerging biotechs at cytiva.com backslash emerging biotech. If you like what you're hearing every week on the business of biotech, subscribe, be kind with the stars you give us, tell your friends about us. And as always, thanks for listening.